Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, fellow Sark Fighter Royce Robertson. Sark hit him early in life. Two, three second flash of, um, I just called it white fuzz. And hard. And, uh, and I said to the nurse, what happened? You know, uh, it wasn't four hours. And she said, you know, the doctor will be in in a minute. And like me, Royce is a cyclist. And like me, Sark has made his passion difficult to pursue. My doctors keep talking to me about, you know, about find ways to challenge your body without straining your heart. That interview is coming up. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 79 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. This episode is brought to you by A-Tire Pharmaceuticals. To learn more about their new pulmonary sarcoidosis trial called EFSOFIT, visit stopsarcoidosis.org slash A-Tire trial. That's A-T-Y-R trial. And the easiest thing to do is to just go to the link that I'll have for you in the show notes. And I can tell you that Atire is a pharmaceutical company that has been in the sarcoidosis space for some time, and their latest drug is showing lots of promise. It's made it through all of the testing up to this point, and it's in its sort of, let's call it the final stage of the clinical trial process, and that will be somewhat lengthy, over a year, but they are still recruiting people to participate in this trial, and I would encourage you to do so. Their CEO, Sanjay Shukla, has been on the podcast a couple of times, so just letting you know what ATIRE is all about. Also, from FSR, you are invited to join a community of sarcoidosis leaders by becoming an FSR Global Sarcoidosis Clinic Alliance volunteer. FSR is seeking people who've been impacted by sarcoidosis to work alongside these newly launched FSR Global Sarcoidosis Clinic Alliance members. What is that? So, FSR has gone back and they've looked at all the different hospitals and clinics and caretakers that really do focus on sarcoidosis and have expertise in those areas. And they have named a certain number of them. It's growing all the time, so I don't want to put a number out there and have it be dated. But they've got a number of these clinics all around the country And now they are looking for volunteers to sort of work out of those clinics to become either community outreach leaders who work together to share their sarcoidosis stories with the public, and that essentially empowers others and raises awareness. Or you could apply to be a support group leader, and you would work in teams of two to facilitate in-person support group meetings at these Alliance member locations. And again, to learn more, you can go to the FSR website, stopsarcoidosis.org slash GSCA leaders, or there will be a link in the show notes, which should be a whole lot easier. So if you've been looking for a way to participate in the SART community and you want to volunteer, this is the way to do it. Okay. Again, I do, this, uh, I do this podcast to offer fellow Sark fighters hope 
and to help you connect with other Sark patients to hear their stories, understand how Sark affects their lives, and then hopefully that gives you an understanding what you're up against. So what do I mean by that? Well, when I was first diagnosed, and even long after I was diagnosed, I'd go into some forums or some chat rooms, and you know there were a lot of people in there who didn't really know what they were up against or they were feeling that frustration that comes through when you can't get diagnosed or you've been sick for a long time and you're finally diagnosed and then you're on prednisone or you're just learning that there really isn't a medication that's ever been designed specifically to to fight, excuse me, sarcoidosis. And and so there's a lot of a lot of misinformation being bantered about among patients primarily uh, or their caregivers and it was scary stuff and I thought wow you know my doctor told me they think they can control this and it wasn't cancer and you know I mean the, the truth is somewhere in the middle but it wasn't as bad as what I was seeing in some of these forums and chat rooms when I was just kind of googling around and looking so I think that one of the things we've learned through 79 episodes of talking to Sark patients and talking to clinicians, talking to the the leadership at FSR is exactly what's going on with sarcoidosis. I think that that on balance, you will find that here in the podcast. Now, you may not find it just today when I talk to Royce, uh, but I think it will it will add to that balance. And I think that we are we're, we here on the podcast are learning what the truth is about sarcoidosis, even though that truth is somewhat of a moving target because uh, medicine is advancing and people are figuring out stuff. And I think that people are learning that to see how other people have dealt with this and they and they see that you know it can be done it can be done and then I've talked to folks who've who've lost loved ones to sarcoidosis who've actually passed and and I've talked to people who can't move more than from their bed to their kitchen because of complications with sarcoidosis and yet they're fundraising by doing that you know so um there's just a lot out there, and and the goal of this podcast is to let you know, if you're in the sarcoidosis space, what's going on, where the progress is in terms of uh, the clinical side, and how other people are dealing with it. And you, you can listen to them, and you can make your own judgment as to... Uh, you know, how they are dealing with this. And, and uh, you know, I, I would say everybody who's come on the podcast has been truthful. But one of the things that, that I know from uh, teaching broadcast news uh, and, and also being a television broadcaster is when we bring on an interviewee, when you, when you watch a soundbite on television, that gives you a ton of intangibles that I could never describe to you if I was the world's best novelist, right? If you watch that person talk, it gives you a back, some, some idea of what their socioeconomic background is, where they're coming from you know, who, who they are, and you gather all of that instinctively and immediately, just sometimes in watching a 20-second soundbite. And so these folks who come on the podcast, and they are talking about 
what's going on in their life. And you get to really listen to them for usually 45 minutes to an hour. You know that person. And you know what you think of the truthfulness uh, of that person's story. And I have yet to interview somebody that I didn't think was being 100% truthful, honestly. Um, I don't hear hyperbola coming from these people. I don't hear folks saying it's either worse or better than it really is. So when you listen to enough of these folks and when you listen to these clinicians that you know, recently we had Dr. John Belperio on here for Belperio from UCLA, and we've had uh, people on here from you know Harvard and Yale, and you know all the top medical institu- institutions in the United States. You know, they're coming on and they're talking about what they're doing and and how they are actually looking at sarcoidosis. So, I'm hoping that all of this gives you some hope and some perspective, okay? Now, today, I'm recording in January of 2023, and I got to tell you that late December and early January have been challenging for me health-wise, as far as I know, not related necessarily to sarcoidosis, um, but I, yeah, I had COVID before Christmas, got over that, and then all of my seven grandkids who were five and under were at the house for Christmas morning, and many of them are in preschool, so I think I've pretty much been exposed to every germ, every bacteria and virus that is in the world right now. Uh, and so shortly after Christmas, I think the day after or the day after that, uh, came down with a bad cold and cough and... Uh, you know, I've been back at work, but I still feel weak compared to normal. It's just been crummy. I'm going to be honest with you. It's been crummy. And for me, everything is sarcoidosis until it's not. And you just don't know if you're taking an over-the-counter medication, but it's not working because you're taking immunosuppressant drugs to fight sarcoidosis. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just having a good run of it or a bad run of it like everybody else has. I went back to work. And everybody's looking at each other. Did you get sick over Christmas? Yes, I was sick over Christmas. Yes, I was sick. More people were sick over Christmas during their break than were not at work. So maybe maybe that's just the way it is. And if you're listening to this, I hope that wasn't you. But I'm hearing that from a lot of people here where I live in the mountains in western Virginia. Okay. So on the other hand, I can tell you I made it all the way through the pandemic, living basically a normal life, going to work, going to the grocery store, doing all the things, and I did not get COVID. I did not get COVID until December of 2022. So all the way through the pandemic, now we've got the masks off, da-da-da-da-da, I've had my vaccinations, and, and boom, I get COVID. And I can tell you today that for the first time, my wife has tested positive. So now the Carlin household has has had and is having its bout with COVID. Um, but today, I want to, I want. let me fast forward here. Today, my interview is with Royce Robertson. Now, Royce, as near as I can remember, first reached out to me back in 2018, which was long before I started the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. But I had my blog at that time. And you've heard me say that I have this cycling blog. It's called Carl and the Cyclist at carlinthecyclist.com. And I've written quite a lot about cycling with sarcoidosis, a whole series of blogs and posts that chronicles what life was like as I was trying to deal with sarcoidosis and prednisone and a drug called cytoxin that I took for a good part of 2019. 
Um, and man, life was, was really, really miserable. But, um, so I continued to, to write about how I was trying to ride my bike and at times unable to do so because of sarcoidosis. And Royce reached out to me through the blog and said that I was one of the few, if not the only other cyclist who was talking about sarcoidosis that, that he had found. And now to be fair, when I talk about cyclists, let me give you an idea before you think that that I and or Royce think that we are these, um, you know, amazing people. We're people who like to ride bikes. Let's put it that way. More than the average person, but you know, but less than the the really good people. Okay, so riding a bike for me or for Royce is like some people go to the gym several times a week. Um, it's not like they're going to be entering the Olympics or winning the strongman contest or walking around with six pack abs. Um, you're just somebody who places a, a bit of a premium on fitness and at least trying to do the right thing. So you can go to lift some weights, you can do yoga class, you can you can take whatever class that they have at the Y or, or at your gym. And so Royce and I sort of in that group of people who when healthy, maybe we can go out on the weekend for a two or three hour bike ride. And in my case, and in the case of most of the people I know who are cycling enthusiasts, you go out for a shorter ride several times during the week instead of going to the gym. So I might go out for an hour ride here and there. And that sort of builds up my endurance to where I can go out and do a nice ride on the weekend. So I would say that I'm a cycling enthusiast. And Royce, uh, based upon what he's told me, is a cycling enthusiast. We've never met face-to-face, but we've exchanged many emails. And, of course, I uh, interviewed him for this podcast. And we're going to talk about the cycling a little bit, not all the time. We're going to talk about it because it may wind up being something in which you can participate in one way or another. So Royce has pinged me again. He's been listening to the podcast, and he offered to share his story. And he's got one of these kind of terrible sarcoidosis stories, but it also is tinged with hope because he's still out there getting it done. He's still working. So as his family, you know, he's, he's up and around. He's functioning, but sarcoidosis has really curtailed that. Um, But he's cooking up an idea to do a bike ride and raise some money to fight sarcoidosis. And I suggested that he do it through FSR, and that's that's something that he's considering. And I have half a mind to join him. And I'm actually wondering, as I speak now, is there anybody else out there who might want to do the same thing? Now, this is very loose right now. Uh, I only have so much vacation time and with my family obligations, it's not really completely up to me <laughs> where that vacation time is spent. None of it will be bad for sure, but I don't know if I'm going to have time left over to uh, go off and join Royce, uh, who's about eight hours away from me, and and then participate in, uh, in a longish bike ride. But maybe it could happen. Maybe. Uh, sometime in the summer of 2023. So coming up, Royce is going to share his story and reveal some of his plan to ride along the old Erie Canal in upstate New York. So think Buffalo, western New York, and then riding a very flat ride back towards, say, Syracuse, Rochester, that area. And so while it's cold and miserable here in January, even in Virginia, not as bad as Buffalo, but it's been pretty cold here. For me, I'm just hoping that maybe this dream takes shape. My interview with Royce Robertson is coming up here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I feel like a zombie 
Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. Joining me now is Royce Robertson. And Royce, tell me more about when sarcoidosis first started impacting your life. Uh, summer of 2016, I, uh, I yeah. started getting lightheaded. And, uh, and it would be this, oh, you know, two, three second flash of, um, I just called it white fuzz. You know, and it would it would it was a warm warm sensation. You know, my eyes would fuzz out, and uh, and and then I you know then, then I'd come back. I wouldn't pass out or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And that's really where it started. And uh, I was uh, and it would you know it was one time. You know, then it would be the next week, and then it would, a couple of times a week, and then started getting up to about a couple of times a day. And uh, and and I was hiding it. You know, I didn't tell, I wouldn't tell anybody about it. Um, you know, a coworker of mine caught me when I was having, having an episode and, uh, you know, and she, she's super conscientious and, you know, it was like, you need to get that checked out. And I was like, yep, yeah. yep. And, uh, and then my wife, uh, then I told my wife about it and she was basically like, all right, you get to a doctor or I'm going to drag you there myself. And, uh, and I was originally diagnosed with, um, arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, uh, or cardiomyopathy, ARVC, ARVD. And, uh, and, and through that, I, you know, got a defibrillator and, uh, and, and I was, uh, you know, I was put in touch with, uh, um, Dr. Calkins at Johns Hopkins, uh, because he runs the ARVD clinic there. Yeah. And, uh, and so from summer of 2016, you go through all this stuff, you know, all this change in my life. Fast forward to April of 2017, I was down at Johns Hopkins for a, uh, for an epicardial ablation, you know, thinking that I had ARVD and, uh, and so they put me under for the, um, for the, they said, we're going to give you a, you know, we're going to put you under, we're going to do a, a transesophageal echo and map your heart. And then, then we'll do the ablation. And, and they said, it'll take about four hours. Um, about 90 minutes later, I woke up uh, in the, uh, in the, in the post-op uh, bay. And, and I was like, wait a minute, you know, I, I don't have, I don't have anything on my chest. I don't have anything, you know, like nothing on my groin from the, from the entry site for the ablation. And, uh, and I said to the nurse, what happened? You know, it wasn't four hours. And she said, you know, the doctor will be in, in a minute. And, uh, the doctor down there, Dr. Tondry, he came in and he said, and he pulls out his iPhone and he swipes in and he says, you see that right there? He's like, that's not ARVD. That is cardiac sarcoidosis. 
And he said they're common, they can be commonly um, misdiagnosed. And you you don't have ARVD, you have cardiac sarcoidosis. And and one of those, you know, he explained what a granulome was. And he said, and also he said one of them is so inflamed that it pinched off a vessel on your right ventricle and you have a lima bean size clot on on your right ventricle. So, you know, I it in that time. You know, like I, I was prepping myself for being like a, you know, like this, uh, you know, warrior for, um, for congenital and 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 uh, and genetic heart defects, and you know, within ninety minutes, you know, of me being under, uh, I went from that to an, an autoimmune disease patient, and uh, and that was a that was my the first time I'd ever heard the word sarcoidosis. Uh, you know, the, really the first time that I had ever had to uh, make such a pivot in terms of how I viewed myself. And so it was a, it was a, a really a crazy nine months. I would guess. Wow. Um, so now, you know, you've got sarcoidosis. What did they do next? I mean, your heart is not like, okay, you, you've still got, they've still got to solve that problem and they've got to attack the bigger problem of sarcoidosis because it's not going to stop there typically. Yeah. So, you know, obviously uh, I always try to explain to people that I, I, it, it's not a plumbing problem, you know, it's an electrical problem. And, and so the, and it's an autoimmune disease. So the, the treatment at that point was pretty standard, you know, taper on steroids and, and suppress the immune system. So I started out on 80 milligrams of prednisone and, uh, and then uh, twice a day uh, orally taking uh, mycophenolate or Celsep. And, you know, and I made some significant changes to my diet. Um, uh, our, the folks at Johns Hopkins were pretty clear. They're like, we're not going to we're not going to give you anything that's rigid or incredibly uh, difficult to follow. It's it, essentially it's follow the USDA guidelines, particularly yeah. watch out on salt, sugar, and fat. And, and so, you know, is for the most part in terms of the, the kind of the medical treatment um, that's, that's what I focused on the, the other things around it, because uh, so back up for a second, I also had sarcoid in my lungs and in my liver. Now, wait a minute. Uh, what, how, how did they find that? Uh, that was just part of the, uh, so when I was, when they went in to do the, the, uh, when they went in to do the, the ablation, you know, and saw the sarcoid, they immediately kicked off a routine of, you know, I spent an extra four days in the hospital down there doing PET scans and, you know, every other uh, uh, bronchial biopsies, you know, everything that you could possibly imagine. So they, you know, once they realized that I didn't have ARVC, ARVD, and, you know, and it was sarcoidosis, that it, it kicked off all of these other things, you know, these routines that they needed to do in order to get a full scope of the disease. So uh, I think after about 48 hours of being in the hospital and kind of adjusting to the fact that, you know, I still had a heart problem, then they came back to me and said, okay, now you, we also now know that you have a little bit in your lungs and a little bit in your liver. And, uh, and so that's really, you know, kind of, um, those were secondary to me. I right. didn't, I didn't, I didn't put as much stock in that 
you know, or at least as, as much concern toward it because they said it was a little bit, you know, and, and your heart is all jacked up because we know yeah, that. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, I'm still breathing, you know, and, and I still, I feel normal when I breathe. It's not like I have short of breath, you know, I've never been short of breath. Uh, and it's not like, you know, there's other things going on with my body in regards to the liver. I was, it, when, when there's a problem with your heart, you feel it every beat, you know, I, here's some crazy stats. So in all of this testing that they do, the PET scans, everything like that, you know, you've probably heard of an ejection fraction, which is the amount of blood that leaves your, you know, leaves your left ventricle. uh, Right. When your heart beats. Every time it squeezes. Well, normal human beings, you know, 70%, 75%, 80%, you know, no one's a hundred percent. Uh, even the healthiest people still have a little bit of, um, you know, remainder of blood in their left ventricle. Uh, mine was 35%. And, 35. Wow. Uh, 35, 35%. So, you know, half of the average, the normal. And, uh, and so, you know, the performance of my heart was pretty, was pretty poor. Uh, I didn't feel it a whole lot. The only things that I really felt were, uh, a lot of, um, I didn't know what they were called at the time. I would just call them palpitations or often I would refer to them as deep beats, yep. uh, you know, real thuds, you know, and, uh, and so PVCs, premature ventricular contractions, tachycardia, uh, you know, so I had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, um, flutters, thuds and rolls, in my chest, you know, it's just, it was just, you know, sometimes everything would just kind of flutter. Sometimes it would be, you know, you'd get one of those PVCs. And this is, this is after they start giving you the prednisone and all that stuff. Because uh, no, I was no, that was that, that the whole before. time. I just never had a name for it. You didn't know what it was. Okay. Didn't and then they went was. in and they they were going to try and and do this major heart surgery. They see the lima bean sized um they call it a lesion blockage whatever clot. it was a clot clot okay but but that would that was a granuloma right it was a well it was a granuloma that that had aggravated a vessel so it had gotten kind of like acne you know it, it had gotten so inflamed that in its swelling and growing it had pinched off a vessel Okay, uh, on my right ventricle, and that and that's what caused the. Uh, but the they clot. couldn't fix that. They couldn't fix that manually, like like uh, uh, going in with with a tube or something. And, and no, uh, no, that so. basically ha- hammered me with uh, hammered me with. Uh, um, oh God, I can't think of the anticoagulant while I was okay. in the heparin. Blood thinner. Okay. Yeah, yeah, hammered me with heparin when I was in the hospital, and then I've been on Xarelto ever since. So they gave you the blood thinner and then said, we're going to fix this with prednisone and reduce that inflammation and yep. try to reopen that, that artery. Okay. Yep. So, uh, so, and, but then of course they discover Sark elsewhere in your body and you're not too particularly concerned about it because, oh, by the way, your heart is acting really funny and you're having these blackouts. So, so you, so now let's, let's advance into your therapy a little bit. Um, how long were you on the 80 milligrams of prednisone? Did that work? And how miserable were you? <laughs> I think, I think overall, I think I did three tapering cycles uh, before we really saw change. And so that, you know, that would be uh, 80, 
for a month and then 60 for a month and then 40 and 20 of that typical, typical pattern of taper. And, and then I, and then I'd go down and I'd do a PET scan. So mm -hmm. it was, you know, taper from 80, six months, get a PET scan, check the results, taper, you know, figure out how bad or good it was, you know? And so I think I, I think I started over maybe, maybe two or three times on that taper. Um, I saw a lot of progress uh, in those three tapers until about um, like, maybe it was about August of 2018 or 2019 when I got down to my first time, I got down to a maintenance level and and then i had a regression and and so then and then when i had that regression is when they when the doctors at hopkins chose to um switch me from prednisone to methoprednisolone and hmm. also add um add an infusion of inflectra uh um uh in order to double up on that spare that steroid sparing agent and, and really, you know, kind of clear the path for the steroids to work as efficiently as possible. And, hmm. okay. uh, and so, so I've been on both prednisone, methoprednisolone. So I'll kind of talk about how each one of those messed with me in different ways. So did you uh, get the moon <laughs> with the prednisone? Did you get the moon face and the irritability and all of that? Strangely enough, uh, prednisone, the two, the two biggest um, side effects for me with prednisone were irritability and sleeplessness. It mm -hmm. was like chugging Red Bulls every day, you know, and, and that was about all, uh, mm -hmm. methoprednisolone or Medrol on the other hand, um, I was sleepless. I was irritable. I got moon face. I, I had more acne than I did when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, and so it was, they were, even though they both have basically the same side effects, uh, each one of them uh, affected me in different ways. Uh, so I, you know, kind of every once in a while, I would, if I had to joke about it, I would say I'd rather be on prednisone because at least I can get a lot of stuff done around the house because I'm not sleeping. But, right, right. you know, and, it, and in the in the job that I work in higher education, you know, I'd spend a lot of time talking with, you know, department chairs, deans, provosts, vice presidents, things like that. And, and I'm, I'm not the tallest person. So when, you know, there's nothing like trying to gain professional respect with people. And when they're looking at you, what they're looking at is the range of zits that's across your forehead oh, and, yeah. you know, and you're, and you're a full, fully grown man in your mid forties. And it's, so it's, you know, it, it, it was just, you know, it was, just, it was a real knock to, to, your, to my self-esteem, my self-confidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I wanted to eat everything, you know, like second breakfast, third breakfast, uh, it, you know, is this, I would much rather be on prednisone if I had to choose. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, so you, you and I both have been sort of charting uh, a course with sarcoidosis since 2016. That's, that's when <laughs> I was diagnosed and I'm sure I had it, um, long before that, but that's so diagnosis. So, so you went through these different stages with the various drugs and did, did that work? Do you, did you, did you knock it back? Yeah. So I, I'm very happy to say that my last, uh, last three PET scans, last four PET scans have been, uh, 
you know, in terms of when you do the PET scan, they give you the nuclear sugars and everything relies on the, the FDG uptake. Uh, I've been very happy lately with the last three or four that I've had no new inflammation um, and no and no sustained um, inflammation. So for the most part, I, 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 I'm very reluctant to say I'm sarcoid free. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I've been the last three or four have been very positive, good news. Uh, you know, the doctors at Hopkins are very, very happy with my progress. So I would say that that treatment, uh, worked. Uh, I've had some other things along the way that have been complications. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, um, I have, I have steroid induced osteoporosis. Oh, really? Uh, be, Cause yeah, too much prednisone. Yeah, Yep. Despite taking a calcium supplement, um, I still had, you know, still had a, a, um, you know, degradation of, of the bones. Um, I was originally diagnosed with that in June of 2019, uh-huh. I think. Yeah. Okay. June, June of 2019. And, uh, and it was pretty, I mean, it was an osteopenia. It was like full blown osteoporosis. You know, the, the numbers were pretty, pretty shocking. And, uh, and so I, at that time, I also started a regimen of Fosamax and, uh, and, you know, refocused on, on, uh, on calcium supplements. And I'm proud, proud to say that I've had about eight or 9% uh, bone density kind of regained eight or 9% of bone density in that time. And so I'm now technically back into osteopenia Mm -hmm. uh, in that regard, actually in uh, my um, endocrinologist at Johns Hopkins said that it's not miraculous, but, but way above average. It, yep. And some of that can be attributed to the supplements and the following the procedure, you know, following the regimen, but also, um, my exercise routine. Yeah. Um, I also had, uh, because I, be- I used to take amiodarone, you know, it's an anti, um, anti-arrhythmial. And when, when you tell someone that you take, that you take amiodarone and you're in your forties there, you know, their usual response to you is, uh, you're not going to be taking it for long because that's usually a drug for people in like their seventies and their eighties. It's not a, you know, it's not kind to the body. Um, as a friend of mine who works in medicine told me it turns most organs into Swiss cheese. Oh, uh, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, she was joking, but, but really kind of give, trying to give me a reality check. So as a result of taking amiodarone for about two years, I ended up with, um, thyro, uh, th- uh, toxic thyroid, thyrotoxosis. Um, it's a, it's an overactive thyroid. And so I had to stop taking amiodarone had to, you know, go through some treatment to get my thyroid under control. So, you know, in many regards, um, the, the treatment, of the the steroid treatment, steroid treatment and the immune suppression did exactly what it needed to do to get the sarcoid under control. Uh, however, I had, you know, I ended up having, I got, you know, I, I developed other problems based on the medication I was taking, much like many sarcoid patients do. Right. And you just recently had something called a sympathectomy. Yeah. Yeah. What is so, that? Well, a little back up a little bit. So I have when you have cardiac sarcoidosis, one of the big risks that you run is scar tissue. I always think of it like acne, you know, sarcoid is like acne. It, it, you know, it, it, um, it's an, it it irritates, it's an inflammation inflammation and it gets irritated. If it gets irritated too much, it leaves behind scars. 
So I had a lot of irritation in my heart. And so I have scars, scars on my heart. And I have a particularly, um, I have a particularly pesky scar uh, on my right ventricle that is, that goes all the way from the, the outside in. So it's, the scar is big enough that it can be seen from mapping the heart from the inside and the outside. And, uh, and that particular scar has caused me to have four epicardial ablations uh, because it's just so, so big and so pesky, you know, little bits of it come to the surface. And then I would have a ventricular, uh, um, an attack, a VT attack. And, uh, and, you know, and I would get shocked by my defibrillator and that's no fun. Uh, it's actually really painful. The, um, and so after the fourth ablation, uh, I started having another run of tachycardia and my doctors at Johns Hopkins basically talked to me about uh, how, how uh, a ton of ablations are not sustainable. You know, it's not a sustainable approach. It's, it, it works for um, solving small problems. It's not, it, it's like, it, it's kind of like the equivalent of cutting your lawn with scissors. You know, by the time you by the time you get a quarter of the way through it, the grass you just cut has grown back up again. You know, yeah. y- there needs to be some other more sustainable ways to cut down on the um, on those those runs of tachycardia. So, okay, through an That's analysis, a great analogy, by the way, <laughs> Thanks. I thought a lot scissors. about it. <laughs> yeah, I bet you have. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, so the so what was happening was after after taking all of my heart data. And analyzing the the nature of my tachycardia, my doctors at Johns Hopkins recommended getting what's called a bilateral sympathectomy. Uh, what they were finding was that a lot of my tachycardia was coming from runaway uh, kind of uh, messages between my brain and my heart, uh, hmm. the the fight or flight response. Hmm. Uh, and so my tachy, I wasn't, I wasn't able to get my own, my tachycardia under control on my own because, you know, my, my heart would go, my brain would say, oh crap. And then my heart would respond. And then my heart would respond and my brain would say, oh crap, you know, and just, boop, 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 you know, is constant, constant, um, non-productive conversation between the brain and the heart. So one of the more sustainable approaches to resolving that problem is to have a sympathectomy. And it doesn't mean that I've had my sympathy removed. It, it, <laughs> what it means is that they've gone in, doctors uh, went in and snipped the, um, the ganglia between my second and third vertebra, which um, mutes, blunts, um, stops, whatever you want to say, the, the fight or flight response between my brain and my heart. So they're cutting nerves. Yeah. Yeah. But yep. they, they, they can say, ah, uh, you're better off without this nerve. Let's cut it. Let's, yep. let's, let's, it's like snipping a wire and stopping the signal. Exactly. Exactly. That's scary. Uh, it, it is scary, but it was one of those things where it was like, again, it, it's one of these kind of lesser, lesser of two evils decisions. I, I can't tell you how much it hurts to be shocked by a, by a, an ICD. And, and how painful it is and how scary it is. And, and I was, I was getting to the point where um, I was afraid to stand up at times. I mean, I'm literally, I'm, I'm kind of speaking in the most vulnerable open way that I can is that every time I stood up, if I would start to get a little bit lightheaded, there was fear that I would, 
have tachycardia and then I would get shocked. And so you're, you know, when we're afraid of something, we do everything we can to avoid it. It's just part of the human brain. And, and, and I, I don't like being shocked. I realize that my defibrillator is, you know, it is, it, it is a very expensive insurance policy and, uh, but it's also a scary one. Uh, and so the, the, the idea that snipping a couple of nerves in my, you know, up around my spinal cord in order to prevent from getting shocked so much um, is, you know, I, I looked at it as like a, a reasonable trade. I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather experiment with that than spend my life getting shocked. And, and so I was willing to do it. Um, it's had some odd side effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, some of my students uh, tell me that I'm a lot more chill than I used to be. Uh, okay. You know, a little, little, but I think that's, you know, that's probably, you know, uh, you know, it's more uh, anecdotal, but, yeah. uh, but the biggest thing is I don't sweat from the chest up anymore. Like sweat. literally, literally nipples up bone dry. Yeah, like you and can't sweat no matter how hard you work out. No, get a, I get a little bit moister, a little bit tingly, um, if I eat spicy food, but that's it that I don't, I don't sweat wow. from the chest up. And so a little bit of background, sympathectomies, um, you know, is happy accidents. Uh, the sympathectomy was a procedure that was formed, performed for people who had hyperhidrosis, uh, you know, excessive sweating from their face or sure. from their hands or from their armpits, whatever the case may be. But what they also found out was that it prevented a fight or flight response between the brain and the heart. So huh. Un unintended not, positive consequence. Unintended positive consequence, but the the side effect of it uh, for me of the not sweating anymore from the chest up has been a weird adjustment. I, mm -hmm. I have to say there's something that I I really enjoy about uh, a, a good sweat. You know, you, you yeah. get done riding, you know, you're in the middle of a bike ride, and there's just something satisfying about having tons of sweat pouring from your brow, you know, or doing yard work. Uh, yeah. But I don't get that sensation anymore. Um, I, oh. I can tell you, I don't ruin as many hats that as I used to <laughs> from sweat, you know, from the sweat ring, but, uh, sure. but you know, the, the, I wouldn't mind every once in a while have having a good, you know, a good sweat. Well, that that's amazing. So let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit and I want to begin to talk to you about the, the, how you and I first met virtually online. You reached out to me because I have this cycling blog because I like to ride my bike. And I published an article about cycling with sarcoidosis <clears throat> it was shortly after 2016, thereabouts. And you and I were in the same boat. Um, and so you found me online and just said, hey, John, um, I'm also a cyclist with sarcoidosis you know, let's just, let's chat and maybe go for a bike ride sometime. So you're, you're in New York state, right? Where, yep. where are you in New York? You're in Western New York? No, just South of Syracuse. South of Syracuse. Got it. Okay. Um, I would consider that Western New York cause I grew up, uh, you know, just on the other side of Utica. So you were West of me. So, uh, but anyway, I'm in, I'm in Virginia now. Uh, but you are, uh, you know, you're an active guy. I mean, you were you were living your best outdoor life before sarcoidosis showed up. T tell people like what what you were into uh, before sarcoidosis came along and said, "Whoa." 
Yeah. So, I, yes, I've always been an, an active person. And when I was younger, it riding usually took the form of, uh, well, when I was a kid, my dream, I wanted to be a BMX star. You know, okay. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to ride the BMX track and, you know, and do that kind of thing. And I've always, I've spent my life on my bike. I really, I love it. And then I, and then when I was in my twenties, moved to New England, I discovered mountain biking and, you know, and we, a friend of mine and I would get our bikes, you know, the gondola would carry the bikes up to the top of the hill and we'd go bombing down the mountain, you know, which mountain Killington, Killington. Killington. Yeah. Killington. Yeah. Love and, Killington. You know, and we'd go, you know, bombing down Killington with, uh, you know, with some Gary Fisher mountain bike that I was barely keeping together. And, you know, and then as I got older, I thought I can't do that anymore. You know, I, but I, I love, I love being on a bike. And, and so a friend of mine got me into road biking and, and I thought to myself, this is it. This is, this is, this is where, this is the kind of the groove I want to be in every summer. I just want to, I want to ride. I want to, you know, the breeze in my face and, you know, see the sights and find different rides. And, and that's, you know, and it, it, that's what it was for me. And, uh, and I got to a point uh, with sarcoidosis where, you know, where it was getting, you know, I, I started to question whether or not I'd be able to do that anymore, because if I had, if I had sarcoidosis in any other organ, I would probably be like, yep, throw caution to the wind. Let's go for it. Let, you know, let's just go for a ride. But with it being cardiac, um, you know, there's just so much about pedaling up hills that are, that is good for your heart, but not good for your heart. And so I've you're been stressing it by, for sure. You're stressing yeah, your heart, yeah. which, you and know, my if, doctors if you, keep, my doctors yeah. keep talking to me about, you know, about find ways to challenge your body without straining your heart. And, and so uh, it's hard to do when you're in central New York, because it's not, it's not flat. So kind of back up for a second here. Uh, the, you know, the summer that I would, that I started getting, um, started getting, uh, uh, having lightheadedness, feeling, feeling the, uh, the, the symptoms, uh, a buddy of mine and I, we did a 55 mile ride from Yorktown Heights, uh, New York down into Manhattan and then took yep. the train back out. I mean, that cool. was a great ride. Yep. That was a lot of fun, uh, along the, uh, Westchester County trails. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then a couple summers later, while I was deep into my, uh, steroid doses and the moon face was just puffing out everywhere while I was still on amiodarone, uh, we did, uh, an 80 mile ride from the Hamptons out to Montauk and back, uh, Long Island. The, uh, Long Island. Yep. yep. And, uh, and then in the summer, uh, after I was on uh, amiodarone was always like a blank, uh, safety blanket to me because it, you know, it, it provided enough, um, uh, enough security in my heartbeat that I wouldn't have, uh, arrhythmia, tachycardia, anything like that. But when I had to go off of it, um, I had a renewed sense of insecurity, uh, around it. But in the summer of 2020, a coworker, Christine and I, we rode our bikes around all 11 of the New York Finger Lakes. Uh, not at once, you know, they were, it was seven different rides and it was about, it's about, uh, somewhere in the, like the three, three twenty five neighborhood in terms of mileage, yeah. you know, it was, wow. it was, a, I, I've got the stats somewhere, but it, it was a, it was the, the most fun that I'd ever had on a bike. Yeah, because the the scenery was great the the conversations were excellent the food was we'd stop always stop for great food 
And uh, but from a from a real altruistic standpoint, it was when I started getting the ideas of riding for other people, you know, riding, riding for something greater than than the sweat. And uh, and I started dedicating different lakes to different people as uh, you know, as we would get done with a lake, I would dedicate that ride to uh, someone else who I knew was fighting heart disease. Uh, or, you know, there's a, I've met some, I've met some really courageous kids here in central New York through the American Heart Association. Uh, and I would dedicate a ride to them. They, you know, they're, they're fighting way, way more difficult battles than I could ever imagine at a younger age. And so as I was, as I would, you know, ride around these lakes, I thought to myself, there, there's got to be a bigger, bigger cause here, a greater, greater mission. And, uh, and that's where I started to think about really, you know, taking that love of riding and pushing pedals to, uh, to what can I do to help other people? And, uh, and that's really where I, it, it's the, it's the yet to be named foundation. Uh, I don't, I don't have a name for it yet. I know that it's, um, you know, that, that really that, um, pedaling pedaling is the passion and but people is the platform and and that's all i know right now and and i know that it's going to involve some rides that are um that are not so hilly you know that uh maybe oh maybe the cumberland gap trail maybe the empire trail in new york um the the mother of them all is the east coast greenway uh callus maine to key west is that really? even done yet? It's not, is it, it? It's not. It's not done, but it's doable. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, there's there's some there's some folks that have wrote it already in you know many times over. It's about three thousand miles. I can't remember the stats on how much of it is is actually bike trails and how much of it is is public roads, but it's it's definitely doable. And, uh, and I'd like to, I, I'd like to be able to start a foundation that raises money uh, for sarcoidosis patients, particularly um, in helping them to, to navigate the costs. You know, I'm fortunate. Uh, I have a, you know, uh, I, I've earned a few degrees in my life and, and I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm making do of it financially. Um, and I've worked in higher ed for about 25 years now, and that longevity has paid off. Yeah. Uh, my wife, m- you know, my wife is a public school employee and she has excellent health insurance. And, uh, but I also know that, that there are people that are not that fortunate and, and I'd like to be able to be able to do something to help them. Um, you know, I traveled down to Baltimore to Johns Hopkins, uh, sometimes four times a year. How far and, is that in car? Uh, 311 miles door to door. And, uh, and so the, uh, the, the, the idea of being able to do that, you know, hospital, our uh, hotel bills, uh, gas meals, you know, all of that a stuff, lot, entertaining right? your kids because a you got to bring them to, you know, those kind of things that I want to be able to raise money for not only for the patients, but for the caregivers to be able to say, hey, let's let's find a way to help cover the the unintended expenses, yep. the the expenses that you did not foresee and that insurance will not cover. Right. And uh, and do it as like a grant program. But 
but also do it as a um, uh, raise money through riding, you know, either pay, either raise money by the mile or, you know, have celebrity rides like, hey, you want to ride with John Carlin? You know, you want to do the Empire Trail with with with, uh, you know, John Carlin. And uh, and oh, by the way, this is the donation you need to make. And here's the people it's going to help. That's awesome. Those kind of things. Royce and I will continue to talk about the bicycle fundraising aspect of what may happen in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, he started talking to me about how he dealt with everything sarcoidosis has thrown at him. Actually, I speak to um, I speak to nursing students, PA students, uh, occupational therapists all the time about my my journey, and and it's not just from a medical sense. It's very it, it's it's a very human experience, and uh, you know I, I hinted to a couple of things before about some anxiety related to yeah. the defibrillator, and 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 I've spent a decent amount of time trying to. Find ways to cope and manage with that. I I see a therapist on a regular basis. Um, I have I've really come to enjoy uh, yoga, and and I'm trying to however however this is possible. I'm trying to get better at meditation. Uh, you know, it's it, it's one of those things that is really difficult for me to do because I I'm, I'm my mind is always active. I'm a fidgety person. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let, let me ask you. About, okay. So, <laughs> so, um, you, you go to, you go to therapy because you're, you're always worried about that next shock. Right. Yep. And, and you've got to deal with that because you're walking around. It's like, you don't know when somebody's going to jump out of a dark alley and pop you over the head kind yep. of thing. Yep. Okay. So now you're trying to do yoga and, and meditation and, I was listening to a guy yesterday talk about he couldn't close his eyes and concentrate for more than 10 seconds before his mind started going to these thought loops again. Just all the things they were worried about, all the things they had to do today, all the the different uh, uh, attacks on their life from various quarters, from other people. And so you are struggling with that. I, I'm sure that if I tried it, I would struggle with that. The thing that I found to be the, let's say, the most centering for me um, are a couple of different practices that that really help me to get away from that constant worrying, list making kind of, let's say, train of thought. Uh, number one is uh, so I work at a at a Jesuit college, and uh, you know they're 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 kind of a you know. A, pretty merry bunch of Catholics. And, uh, and the Jesuits always talk about consolation and desolation, and that we naturally spend our lives in kind of desolation, thinking about all the things that could go wrong. But what we have to do every so often in order to balance that out is stop and find consolation. And look at even the smallest things, you know, you know, like, I, I can say, you know, with consolation, I'm here today. Uh, you know, or I can say with consolation that I've made it to 11.06 a.m. and I have not felt a PVC in my chest today. And those are the kind of things that I have to take stock of and to and to be grateful for and to show that gratitude. And so one of the ways that when my mind is just burning uh, in terms of in terms of the negative things is I have to remind myself to find consolation. 
and even the smallest things. And as I just start working through those and repeating them to myself, then I start to give up some of that desolation and that 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 con- that more negative mindset or those thinking about all the things that could go wrong. It's it's hard. It's very hard to do, but it's if we don't intentionally practice it, we're not going to get any better at it. So consolation desolation is one thing. The other thing is I worked with a therapist early on in my journey uh, when I when I would say that I was the the most nervous about basically being shocked to death. Uh, you know, I would have nightmares about uh, very graphic things where I would be I would be hurt or I'd be in an accident and my defibrillator would just keep shocking me because that's all it knows what to do. It was just doing its job. And and so I had to spend some time in, in therapy talking about that. And uh, the first therapist that I worked with gave me a great strategy called longest best day. And what I would do is I'd, I'd identify three, four, five days of my life that were that had substance to them and were predominantly a good memory. So wedding day, uh, the day that my daughter was born, um, one of those bike rides with my friend Jerry, you know, where I'd think about getting up in the morning and work through every step of it. And, and so whether I'm lying in bed sleepless or I'm at a doctor's appointment and I'm stressed about some results, or I'm in the midst of a, a panic attack. I've had many. Um, longest best day has been has been a real um, has been a good tool in my toolbox for helping to keep it. Not to always think about you know I don't want to be Pollyannish and say we've always got to think about good things, but part of it is to stop yourself you know from thinking about all the bad things you know, do a little bit to help yourself by, by not immediately turning to all the things that could go wrong. And so those are a couple of strategies that, that I use, um, that, that help me to stay focused on the positive, um, Mm -hmm. the, and, and it, it has been helpful. I have to say some days are better than others. Uh, and, and even though my sarcoid is, is under control and, and uh, and I don't feel like I'm at the mercy of the inflammation. Um, I still have I still have scars on my heart. I still have a defibrillator in my chest. I still run the risk of uh, I still run the risk of tachycardia and getting shocked. And I have to you know in some regards I have to behave. I have to watch out for that. I have to try to prevent it. And and just keeping myself in a state of more positive mental health um, only stands to benefit me. For sure. Yeah. So let's talk about how sarcoidosis has impacted your life outside of your body and what it's doing to you. Cause you're married, you are a professor, um, you have children. How has, how has, have all of these illnesses and diversions and hospitalizations and medications affected your relationships with the people closest to you? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question. And, um, the, the two people closest to me are my, my wife, Rebecca and my daughter, Claire, um, they have, um, I have to say they've seen me at my best and my worst. 
they 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 were there in the room when I passed out and started going into a pretty serious cardiac event. And uh, and I woke up, I woke up with my head in my lap or head in my wife's lap and my daughter in the corner screaming things that I don't think the listeners want to hear. Not they weren't curse words, but they were pretty dark, you know, and uh, and and she was nine at the time. Mm, They they thought I was dead. Wow. Wow. So so has because this is very tough for our loved ones. You know, we're we're going very. through this, but they didn't ask for it. No. They you know, they they were fat and happy and uh, you know, I mean, that's a that's a kind of a dumb expression anymore, but you know, they they were just living their life with someone they loved and all of a sudden here comes this haymaker. And now they have to adjust because you don't have any choice. And if they're going to go with you, they're going to have to go down the road you're traveling. And that's not easy. Yeah, no, it's, I'm, I, I'm amazed daily at their strength. Um, They, I've, I've seen them at their weakest moments as well. You know, times when my daughter is just too, too afraid to come visit me in the hospital. Or times when, um, you know, when my wife just feels like she can't take one more piece of bad news. But I've also seen them at their best uh, when, you know, my daughter will draw up a little card for me when I have to go in for a procedure. And, you know, and 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 my wife is is the minute that that they allow guests in the hospital, she's there and that she has, you know, that that she has. um you know, teacher contracts can be a weird thing. You know, there's certain days you can take off and certain days you can't take off. And, and, uh, and she's taken unpaid days uh, to be with me when I'm, when I'm in a hospital and, you know, and so they've made all kinds of sacrifices uh, just to let me know that, that, that I'm loved and that they want me um, to come home safe. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, I, I see it in their eyes. I can hear it in their voice when they, when they're worried about me. Um, they get worried when I do crazy things, you know, like ride my bike around, uh, around the finger lakes and things like that, but they're right there. They want to be there to celebrate when it's done. Um, the, it has caused some strain, you know, obviously, uh, short-term financial stuff, you know, it's, it's like, okay, we've got to, you know, we've got to come up with you. My wife will spend, you know, six nights. My longest, my longest hospital stay was 12 days. And, uh, and I've had, I've had 16 separate hospital stays in the last six years. That doesn't count. That doesn't count traveling to Baltimore for testing and things like that. That's just the number of times that I've met admitted, and uh, and so all of that stuff costs money. And so we've had short term financial strain and we have to have some serious conversations about where we where where do we make up for this? You know, it might be eating out less. It might be, you know, not not going on a vacation, those kind of things. But those, in the grand scheme of it, those are those are smaller decisions. There's, you know, other other bigger things that that we have to worry about at times, you know, um, what 
I take an immune suppressive drug, both orally and, uh, and through an infusion. And, you know, and if prior to COVID, during COVID, after COVID, whatever, you know, pick a time, doesn't matter there, you know, there's times where if she has a sniffle or if she has, um, you know, my wife has a, has a cold or she's starting to come down with something, you can forget kissing her on the lips, you know, and, you know, and that, and that has a, has a, an impact on, on our intimacy as a couple. And, and so, you know, she's worried about not getting me sick and, you know, and so there's, there's a lot of, um, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't cause arguments per se, but it, it, it causes some, you know, time for us to sit and reflect and say, all right, what's important? Um, how are we going to deal with this? You know, and, and can, you know, what do we need to do in order to make sure that we're both feeling, um, feeling like we're both part of a, a couple, uh, you know, a team, but also ourselves as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of juggling that goes on there in terms of my, at least my emotions. Sure. You know, I, I don't want, I don't want to get sick and I don't want to get them sick and they're the, they're the same way. Mm. So sometimes we walk on eggshells around each other when we're not feeling so good. Yeah. You have know, you had those, COVID those by the way? Uh, I have, I have. And, and, uh, I, I have to say again, this is a case where I am incredibly fortunate for the, for the, the things that I have. Um, I happened to be at Johns Hopkins when I got it, get it, you know, I was getting, wow. or when I, when I presented symptoms and tested positive and they immediately got me in for um, an antibody infusion. And uh, it's the craziest story about how I got it, but if we don't have time, that's okay. Um but I, I got an antibody infusion and I felt almost immediately better. I mean, literally like the next morning I wanted to go for a walk and, wow. and tw 12 hours prior to it, I, um, uh, I couldn't do much more than stare at a wall. You mm. know, it was, it was horrible. And, uh, but I've had mm. the antibody infusion. I've had the, um, I've had the shot of Evyashel. Um, it's a, it's a, I, I don't know if it's, FDA approved or not, but it's the preventative medication for hmm. those that are immune compromised. And, uh, and I've had, I think five, the two original COVID shots and then three boosters, three so, boosters. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like the people say vax to the max, I'm like vax to the max plus, you know? And, and so I feel like I'm doing what I I'm using science to the best of my abilities in this regard. And I hope that it pays off if, and when I get it again. Well, I'm, I'm glad everything worked out for you. I'm just uh, about three weeks clear. I made it all the way through the pandemic and all the way to December of 2022. And all of a sudden, pow, I got it. But I had a couple of days of fever, a uh, fairly mild case. And I didn't even call my doctor, which in hindsight, I guess was stupid, but, um, and I was, I've, I've had, the two original shots and one booster and was queuing up for the second booster. Didn't want to miss a day of work. And a lot of people get sick when they get the booster. So I was kind of like trying to slot it into a time where it wasn't going to matter a whole lot. And then boom, it got me out of left field, but that's neither here nor there. So look, Royce, I appreciate you being willing to kind of come on here and, and bear your soul. This has been 
amazing. Uh, and, and I feel so badly for all that you've been through with all your hospitalizations and, and the different medications that you're taking. The good news is, is that as you sit here today, you're feeling quite good, right? Oh, and, absolutely. And, and now you are scheming and, uh, and I, to the extent that I can, I want to scheme with you to do some sort of a fundraising bike ride for sarcoidosis and uh you know you the the empire trail goes all the way across new york state it's flat follows the erie canal right and the canal yep. is you know without rapids except where they have the lift locks to get around yep. the rapids but essentially there's there's very little elevation gain if you go from buffalo all the way to albany all the way across the state um and most people do that in like a week i think don't they yep um Boy, that would be, wouldn't that be great if we could get a bunch of people together? Or if, you know, if it's just you and me, that would be great. Or if it was just you, it would be great. And I can give you publicity through the podcast and through FSR. But it seems like there's the seed for something there yeah. to raise some money to help fight sarcoidosis. I I agree. I no, uh no doubt about it. I'm doing at least Buffalo to Syracuse in the in probably June, maybe of 2023. Okay, and, and that's kind of my maiden voyage of overnight trips. I've never done a, I've never done an overnight ride. Not not to mean I ride all night, but you know, um, to say, all right, we're going to put in 70 miles today, and then we're going to we're going to get a hotel, and then we're going to get up tomorrow and start it over. You know, I've never done anything like that, and I'm so mm -hmm. excited to. And uh, I love. I'm I'm the type of person that loves planning out the planning out the trips. You know, I probably Clark Griswold and I would probably get along really well. You know, uh -huh. like world's largest ball of wax kind of thing. Uh -huh. And uh, and so I'm looking forward to plotting out every step. Definitely doing uh, Buffalo to Syracuse in 23. If if you wanted to ride, if there's others that want to, I think contact me, and let's try to work out a best case scenario and and give this thing a uh, kind of a maiden voyage and and say, what does it take to do this, and what what impact can we have as a result of it? But I'm in, uh, I'm in. It's just a matter of kind of who and when and how long. Okay, well. Son of a gun. I, uh, my mind is clicking. Uh, I've got a, a, a busy schedule with family this summer, but I am, I, a, I just want to do the bike ride because <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. I've never done the overnight thing with the hotel and the 70 miles and then the 70 miles is I, I haven't done that either. Um, even though that, uh, you know, cycling wise, I feel like, you know, my body can handle that. Um, so let's, Let's just keep talking. Let's see if people are listening and they've got some interest uh, and they feel like this is something that they might be interested in. Maybe we can figure out a way to uh, to let this thing get some legs, as it were, and who knows what happens. That sounds like a great idea to me. I, you know, however the listeners want to get a hold of you or me, I'm um, and maybe I can, maybe I can start to um, collect some ideas through my social media and uh, and be able to say, okay, well, here's a here's a reasonable date that we're going to nail down. We're going to try this, and if and if it may be 
minimalist in terms of organization. Like if, if you're, if you want to do this meet here on this day, right. You know, and right. let's, and let's give it a shot. So how long, I'm, how, I'm so how many, how many days will it take? Two days? What is it? 150 miles? I think it's about in that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah I would say so. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind going a little less on the mileage and maybe an extra day if possible, just, just because physically I'm not where I want to be. Uh, you know, the last year, even though my health has been better, I have not been riding as much as I want to because, you know, basically doctors saying to me, challenge your body without taxing your heart. I haven't been able to do that as much because everything riding here involves hills. And, you know, and so I, I've been a little bit, um, I have to, I'll, I'll just come right on and say it. I'm out of shape. You know, I, I need to be able to maybe cut back a little on the miles and give it an extra day in order to just feel like I'm not, you know, not breaking myself every day. Gotcha. Well, let's stay in touch. Let's, let's see if this, uh, seed starts to grow into a tree and and we'll take it from there okay that sounds great to me and i just want to thank you john i mean really this has been an honor to come on this there's so many people that are that are fighting sarcoidosis and they rely on you know frankly people like you uh and people like me who are willing to talk about it uh the different support groups that they might have through their through their you know their care providers and uh, and I w- I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you to all the caregivers out there. You know, my wife is my caregiver. I hate the I'm in I'm in my you know late 40s and I cannot believe that I have to identify someone as my caregiver. And you know, but it's the reality of it. And and so I just want to thank them along with you and everyone else who are fighting the good fight. And let's keep let's keep fighting. Now, my motto is always the same. Embrace the grind. And that is the that is the daily motto for fighting, fighting chronic illness is that you've got to get up every day and kind of take um, take stock of the the little things that you do every day in order to stay healthy and, and, and make progress. So I hope everybody out there can embrace the grind if they're if they're feeling like they need it. Good deal. Thanks, Royce. Yeah, no problem. Just feeding that stumbling Thanks so much to Royce for being willing to come on the podcast and to share his story. And as you can tell, he has been through a lot, a lot with sarcoidosis. And then again, there's this whole thing about this bike ride. And I want to support him in one way or another, whether I just send him a check uh, or whether I help him reach out to you and you all send him checks or whether I put my bike on the back of the car and I drive up to Buffalo and I get on my bike and I do that ride with Royce. And maybe some of you come along. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want this thing to become unruly, but man, where I just feel like there's some synergy there that it could be a rock that could start to uh, uh, snowball, if you will. So it may be, <laughs> maybe a small snowball that could start rolling down the hill and become a big snowball. How's that? 
Uh, I just have to say there are just a lot of moving parts, but I want to help Royce out with this, and I'm so glad that he is willing to do it. Wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool to see a whole group of us in the SART community somehow come together, do a fundraiser for FSR, raise awareness, and have a great time riding bikes? So the seed is planted. Let's see if it sprouts and grows. Man, I've got analogies all over the place. Rocks tumbling, snowballs growing, seeds planted. Thanks again to Royce for reaching out. And Royce, I wish you the best as you deal with sarcoidosis. All right, a reminder, the official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer, who plays in a band called the White Hot Lizards in Alberta, Canada. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter. That's what led to the lyrics for this song. You can hear the backstory in episode 12. I release this podcast every other Monday. As I'm speaking today, my trusty boxer, Dougal, has abandoned me. He's normally curled up on the chair in my office, but my wife is home today, and he is he is spending time with her. I, I, I think he's my dog, but if we're both home, he's and she's working on a computer over in her office, he's always with her. What's up with that, Dougal? All right, don't forget to follow me on social media. I'm on Facegram, Facebook, Instagram. I actually have an account on Peloton as Sark Fighter. There is my cycling blog, Carl and the Cyclist, and that section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. And I've just started a YouTube channel for bicycling. It's called Biking for Boomers. That's biking with the number four and then boomers. And I'd love it if you would check it out and subscribe and and watch some of my videos. That would really make me happy. Uh, If you're new here and you're trying to figure out what sarcoidosis is and you want to go right back to the basics, go to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. And it is one of the most listened episodes, listened to episodes. My story is episode one. The backstory to the founding of the foundation for sarcoidosis research is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. Andrea is a fellow SARC fighter, and they started the foundation at their kitchen table. Send me an email. It's in the show notes, carlinagency at gmail.com. I appreciate your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. It helps me reach more people and grow the show. If you share it on your social media, and if you like it, please just tell one person. And it wouldn't hurt if you gave it a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead man walking, trying to keep up the pace. Dead man walking.